Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. My wife, Leslie, she has an older brother, uh, and growing up they fought a lot. Uh, You guys have siblings, you know about sibling rivalry. He's uh, three years older, and so they, uh, they had all kinds of conflict, except uh, if somebody came at Leslie, uh, then the big brother would kick in. So there's, uh, Leslie tells this story of one time, uh, they rode the bus to school out in a little country village. Uh, they're riding the bus, and this guy who's a, a year older than Leslie comes up, and he just blows into Leslie's ear hard, and it like, I'm going to get you, and Matt her brother sees it and he just stands up and walks down the aisle and kind of looks over at this guy and like puffs up and says like, you don't do that to my sister. And Leslie looks up like, my hero, my big brother. Uh, We have three kids and it's fun to watch them. It's not fun to watch them fight, but it's fun when uh, when they have each other's back. So we were at a playground Oh, what is it, a year ago-ish? Um, and Elena's our oldest. She's nine. And there was this girl there. Uh, we were playing with friends, and there was this girl who started to push Elena. And it started out playful, uh, but it just kept going. And it, it started to get harder and harder, and she wouldn't stop. And Elena is kind of non-confrontational, and she didn't really know what to do. Lucy is our redhead. She has no problem with conflict. So... She's this little pipsqueak, three years younger than Elena, younger than the girl who was pushing her, and she went right up and said, hey, I'm not afraid of you. You don't do that to my sister. After that, she went full tiger pose. Like, (laughs) we watched it like, that was a good play. (laughs) That That was really fun. If you have siblings... You likely know conflict, but hopefully you also know this side of a brother or sister that says, but when it matters, I got you. We might have our issues. Every family has their issues, but when it matters, I got you. Family is meant to be deep. Uh, I have two, two younger brothers, and we fought growing up, but... Like we had each other. If somebody came at them, uh, they had to go through all of us, right? So I want to talk today about family, and I want to talk about family rules and expectations because it's expected of a big brother to come to his younger sister's side. It's expected of a sibling. That's the way things are made to work, that I've got you. I want to talk about family. I want to talk about family rules. We're going to jump right in if you guys are good with that. And if you're not good with it, then <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, we're going to go to 1 John 5 and start in verse 1. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God that we keep his commands. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
John starts and he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. It's a different way of saying that would say, everyone who believes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. You get born into God's family. And so people throw out kind of the term born again. And this is where it comes from, not in some sort of hyper-religious uh, kind of way. But like, I recognize that I have a new life that starts when I put my trust in Jesus. And Jesus alone, I have a new life that starts and I'm born into the family of God. John says, if you believe in Jesus... You are a child of God. You are born of him. He is your father. You are his child. Tony, a few weeks back, preached on uh, 1 John 3.1. And I love just the idea. How great is the love the father has just lavished on us. Not in a stingy way, like, I'll I'll give you some love because you're my kid. But how great is the love the father has lavished on us. Just overwhelming. I just, want, I just want to pour it on you that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And John comes again. He's got these recurring themes through this whole book of 1 John of life and light and love. And you are a child of God. And he's coming back to it. And he says, I want you to know in Jesus, you are God's child. So I had this argument with a friend. A number of years ago, we were, uh, we were on a mission trip down in uh, Mississippi. Is how uh, I always said it. I, I had more syllables, and we went down there, and it kind of shortened. So I'm arguing with him in the truck one day as we're going from one site to another about who is a child of God. And we were kind of going at it. He, and he, he came from one perspective, and I came from another. It says, everyone is a child of God, or certain people are God's children. And so we kind of went back and forth. We had that kind of relationship where we'd always be poking each other. And in the end, I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. So everyone is created by God and loved by God and has value because of that. Every single person uh, comes from God's handiwork. And yet, John talks about a difference. John talks about a switch that happens that says, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a new life happens. So while you are created by God and loved by God and you have value because of that, there is is another level of sonship and daughtership when you put your faith in Jesus. It's It's like you step into the blessings of family. You step into the family in a much, much more real way. John says, believing in Jesus brings someone into the family. And this is not just that we believe that Jesus was a good teacher. This isn't just that we believe that Jesus, we believe in Jesus and we trust in Jesus and a whole bunch of other stuff. Like, uh, my dad believed in Jesus, my mom believed so. Like, I'm, I kind of believe all, all kinds of stuff, so I'm good no matter what happens. This is a, John would present and. And we would affirm a all Jesus, only Jesus. We don't look to anything else. We put our faith in Jesus. And that brings us into the family. It's, a, it's like a marriage in that way. So a husband doesn't stand up and say, I'm going to commit to you 
and her and her and her, right? Like I'm all in. I'm all in. And when two people get married, they say there's no one else. And so there's, there's this, there is such a thing as a righteous jealousy, you know? Like a, a wife should appropriately want all of her husband's affection. That is not an inappropriate desire or expectation. A husband should want all of his wife's affection. Not in, a, not in a manipulative, you can't go out, you can't have any kind of friends, you can't do anything, I will control you. But when it comes to, when it comes to passion and your affections, you won't give that to anybody but me. And I won't give that to anybody but you. This is the kind of relationship that John presents that we would have with Jesus. That Jesus, I won't give my affection to anybody else. I won't put my trust in anybody else but you. You've committed yourself to me. And I'm, I'm giving myself wholeheartedly back to you. He says, this is the only way to the Father. Trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and then entering into a new life in family. So when we get to celebrate Easter next week, and we get to celebrate baptisms here, that is part of the story is to say, I have trust in Jesus, and Jesus only for the forgiveness of my sins, and this new life that he gives me. And I'm all in. I'm all in for him. So John says, if you believe in Jesus, you are a child of God. And more than that, John says... You are more than just a child of God. You enter into a family of children of God. He says, whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So whoever, whoever loves the Father loves his kids too, right? If you are an uncle or an aunt, you know family relationships. When you become, uh, when, when your niece or nephew is born, you love them, not because... Like you walk into the nursery at the hospital and they're the cutest ones there and you're like, I'm going to love that one. You love them because of the family connection, right? You love them because your brother, your sister, that's, that's their mom or dad. You're connected with them and you give them that love because they're in the family. So just like we have a natural defense for our brothers and sisters or for our nieces and nephews, John says... We would look at fellow Christians in the same kind of way. That I, I should view all people, and especially Christians, with a family kind of, I, I've got your back. We may fight and we may quarrel, but I've got you. I think that's true for people in general, and especially for people in the family of God. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So the two things in this section that come up, John says to love God is to obey God. We, the proof of love is obedience. And it's not a twisted, we obey, we obey to receive love, is we obey because we've been loved. So there are two, two things that I want to pull out of that, is the, what are his commandments? And then John throws this thing in here that says his commands are not burdensome. 
And I want to talk about that for a little bit. When, when John talks about, uh, we know that we love God when we obey him, he, over and over and over, just like James, they, they keep going back to Jesus when he's asked, what is, what is the greatest commandment? People are testing Jesus to say, I, I want to see if you trip up here. Because if you just narrow it down to one, that's, that's not good. Or if you say they're all equal, like that's just dodging the questions. I want to see, Jesus, what you say. And Jesus has this way of answering where he doesn't dodge the question, but he just pierces them. And he says, you want to know the greatest commandment? And he pulls these out of the Old Testament. He says, you love God with everything. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. And we often do this tiered approach. And what Jesus says, the word that he uses, the second is like it. The second is of the same substance. Like you cannot separate these two. So you love God and you love people. These are inseparable commands. If we fail with either, we fail. And Jesus has this statement where he says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Which is to say, all the, other, the laws in the Bible are important, but they all, uh, they all come under these two biggies. Love God and love people. You can look at all of the commandments in the Bible and you say, which one is this more getting after? Is this a love God command or is this a love people command? And, it, and it's simple. Jesus has this way of simplifying things and seeing it very clearly. I, um, I'm kind of right in the middle when it comes to obedience. Um, there are some people that love rules and, and they are rule followers. And it's like, man, if you give me rules and if you give me structure, I will, I will thrive. And I don't care what kind of rule. Like, I just love following rules. Uh, how many of you are like that? <laughs> there, are, there are some. There are, there's another swing of people that are like, I don't like the word command. That is not me. You give me a rule, I'm going to break it just because it's a rule. I might even like doing it. I might even be happy to have it. But you just said rule, and you said obey, and you said command. Those are all swear words to me. That's like cursing in my book. And we reject those. I'm like right in the middle where if I understand a rule, then I like to submit to it. And if I don't, then, then I sometimes purposely will just chuck it, which isn't good of me. But if I'm honest, that's, that's where I come. But, so there was a point in my life when I wouldn't even preach like God's commands because I didn't. I, I remember preaching a sermon uh, where I said, I'm not even going to use the word obey because I don't like that word. <laughs> like, oh, okay, well, good. Three times here in two verses, John says the word commandment. Does God have commandments for us? Does he want us to follow them? Absolutely. But then John tosses this, but God's commandments are not burdensome. The obedience that isn't burdensome. I'll follow the rules. And yet for the people here who are like, that's a, that's a swear word. Like, wait, it's not something... It's not something that's meant to manipulate you or to power down on you. It's not burdensome. What in the world? How is John going to say that? I will bet, I will bet that John 
Because in the beginning of the book of 1 John, he says, this is the Jesus that we saw, that we heard, that we listened to, that we touched. This is, he was real. We spent time with him. I would bet that when he says his commandments are not burdensome, he's going back to the time that he spent with Jesus and he's listening. He's remembering when Jesus taught about commandments. So there's this time in Matthew 11 when Jesus is looking out over people and he says these words. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And, it, and if, we, if we dig in a little bit to what's going on there, um, he's, he's contrasting himself with the Pharisees. He's contrasting himself with other religious leaders of the day. And when you subscribed to a certain teacher's um, teaching, it, what was said was that you put their yoke on you, that you submitted to them, and then you let them guide you where they wanted to take you. And the Pharisees had this way of putting heavy yokes on people, that they would go to the, they would go to the scriptures and they would find all the commandments that they would they could possibly heap on people, and then they'd write three times more and say, well, just, in, just, just to make sure that you get it really on, we're going to write this other one, and we're going to write this other one, and we're going to write this other one, and you had better keep all of these if you want to be a student of mine. And they did it in a way that, that raised them themselves up so that they could say, look at me. And how good I am. And I don't know if you'll ever be like me. And it would press down. And people were getting tired. I can never, ever follow that. That becomes such a heavy burden around my neck. And Jesus, Jesus says, I want to take that off. He doesn't remove submission. He doesn't remove obedience, but he says, when you submit to me, my yoke is easy. That doesn't mean without effort. That doesn't mean just smooth sailing. That doesn't mean like you get to live however you want. Then he's like, you submit to me, you take my yoke. And yet it's not going to be this huge weight around your neck or on your shoulders that you just can't carry. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why can he say that? And I think there are three reasons. The first is that his yoke is not about follow my laws or else. Follow my laws or else. Jesus is about grace. I want to help you. I want to help you follow me. And he's inviting us into a family. This is, not, this is not a master-slave relationship that so many of them knew. Like a master and a slave have a relationship where the master looks for opportunities to punish them. Say, so I'm going to have rules, and when you step out of line, I'm going I'm to crack down on you. I'm going to punish you. And Jesus says, my yoke is more like a father with his children. Now, some of us have... 
Some of us don't have fathers who match this description. Some of us have fathers who really are more like masters and slaves relationship. Like I'm looking for an opportunity to punish you. And their anger hurt us. Maybe, maybe his anger hurt you and continues to hurt you. And Jesus is talking about a different kind of father. Jesus is talking about a father who loves. And I think the difference is seen not in that he removes all boundaries, but it's seen, I think, in the difference of terms between punishment and discipline. And I think for somebody who's in the family of God, God doesn't punish. God disciplines. I say, I love you as a child, and I can't let you keep going in this direction. I'm going to discipline you so that, so that you'll be better equipped to follow me. Punishment, punishment, the purpose of a punishment is to inflict a penalty for an abuse. I want to hurt you because of what you did. Where in discipline, it's I want to train you. I want to help you. I want to correct you so that you can be more mature. The focus of punishment is because, because of past misdeeds. You're going to pay because of what you did. Discipline is about future correct living. You, you mess this up. We're going to have some discipline so that as you walk into the future, you can live the right way. The attitude of punishment is hostility. It's frustration on the part of the parent, right? I'm so frustrated you, I'm, I'm going to come down on you. And with discipline, when we get it right, and God gets it right, it's love and concern. If you're a parent, you know this trigger in you, that sometimes kids just anger you, and you lash out in a way that you say, I don't think that was healthy, I, I don't think what I did was healthy. And it's completely different when your kid is messing up and you look, at the, you look at them and you say, I want to help them. I want to help them live a different way. You have a completely different approach and it's because your attitude is different. Anger is never, anger isn't, I don't know that we're ever capable of doing it well in anger. Love and concern on the, part of, on, a, on the part of the parent, on the part of God, is the difference between discipline and punishment. And what happens, they, they might seem pretty similar, punishment and discipline, but what happens as a result are vastly different. So punishment often leads to fear and to guilt because... I keep thinking of what I did wrong and how it hurt afterward. I keep thinking about, I don't want to mess up again because they're gonna, he's going to get me. He, it's going to hurt again. We're disciplined. Discipline, when we get it right, is about security. I know that dad cares enough about me to draw boundaries so that I, I walk in life. Instead of stepping out in the road, he taught me not to go into the road. And he, he, he spanked me 
when I ran into the road. That doesn't make me fear him. That makes me thank him because I recognize that was not a good place to play. And that's the difference between, I think, that's why I would say, I don't think God punishes his children. I think he disciplines his children. Because I don't think he, I don't think God sits on his throne in heaven and looks down and says, wait, 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 gotcha. Now I can take my wrath out on you. I think when he sees us in sin, he hurts. And he hurts for us. And he says, I will do whatever it takes to help you lead a life that is life. So I will correct you. And sometimes it'll hurt. But it's because I want life for you. He's inviting us into family. This is not a master-slave relationship. This is like a good father, a good, good father with his children. And so many people do not know this. They think of God as just up there waiting for us to screw up so that he can inflict pain. And maybe this is how you think of God. You're not alone. There's a college professor at a, uh, a Christian college who took this survey among his students. He said, I asked 40 students to write a one-page essay analyzing whether their lives had been shaped by the threat of law, follow or else, or the wonder of God's grace. And he said he was devastated by the results. He said 90% of the class over 90% of the class admitted privately that the possibility of God's disfavor and wrath had shaped their Christian outlook since they were kids. God's unending love was not the foremost thing in their minds, but his possible displeasure was. Christianity, they reported, was really about following the rules. And this is what one 21-year-old student wrote. I feel like God punished me, punishes me for for sins all of the time. I feel that there's always something I'm being punished for. And I know that it's not, I know it's not, I know that's impossible because there are not enough minutes in the day for God to punish us. I probably shouldn't call it punishment, but that's the way I feel about God's justice. I know of God's love and blessings for me. And for that, I'm eternally grateful and thankful. But I live with this fear that one mess up and I will be punished again. Living like this takes the joy out of following Jesus. God, I live in fear. And Michael preached last week, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So the Bible tells us that there's another conflict in the Bible, which isn't really a conflict. The Bible says, perfect fear casts out love. There is no fear in love. And then, you know, the Proverbs Say, fear God. And, and there again, it's yes. Both right. Because what it's talking about is, I want you to fear God in the way that you have a deep respect for him, in a way that you honor him, in a way that you want to do what is right. But not in a way that makes you cower. Not in a, may, in a way that makes you hide and run away from him and just hope that he doesn't get you when you screw up. Living 
to avoid punishment will kill your relationship. It's living so that he will love you. And Jesus is inviting us to something different. Jesus is inviting us into the family to trust him and then to live to please him because he already loves us. There is nothing you can do to make God love you less or to make God love you more. He is already crazy about you. And we are sick when the vast majority of Christians would say, I believe God loves me. But the thought of displeasing him and him punishing me outweighs that most of the time. How do you approach God? You have an invitation to be loved by the Father who wants you to really live, who wants what is best for you. And so obeying someone who wants the best for you is not burdensome. That's the first reason. It's not burdensome because it's not just about following the law or else. It's about, let me show you the way to live. I'll follow that. The second reason it's not burdensome, I think, is because God never, ever, ever gives us the command that he doesn't also give us the strength to obey. It's not like he says, do all this stuff and now do it on your own and then you'll get to me. He gives us the strength to carry it out. Jesus isn't just telling us to try harder. He says he's with us. He says, I came to be with you. He says, I'll never, ever, ever leave you. And he said, and then when he left, he said, I'm going to send my spirit to not just be next to you, but to be in you. And with him in you, you have all of heaven's power available to you to obey the commands that God gives you. The Old Testament said it like this. It says, there is a day coming when I will write my law on their hearts. It's not like I'm just going to write it and give it to them and say, good luck. I'm going to write it on them so that their name says obedient. Who they are in Jesus Christ is inside my law. I'm going to write it. That's the name I'm going to write on them. I'm going to write it into their DNA. It's not just about trying harder. It's about seeking his power to help you. It's about receiving his power, saying, you have given it and I, I need your help. And you give generously. It's about opening yourself up so that he can transform you. So I think it's, The reason it's not burdensome is, one, because he's not saying, follow me or else I will punish you. It's not about trying harder because he's with you and he will give you everything you need to obey. And then third, when he talks about these two big commands of loving God and loving people, the reason that loving people isn't burdensome is because we recognize that they're family. We recognize that these aren't just people. These are my people. These aren't just strangers. These are 
people created by God and loved by God, and we are in this together. And especially if they put their faith in Jesus Christ, they are a brother or sister. And though we may fight, I've got their back. Sticking up for your family is not burdensome. It's just family. So Jesus' yoke, his commands, basically get broken down into these two biggies, love God and love people. He commands us to love people. In John's words here, anybody who loves the Father loves his kids. uh, Have you guys ever heard of Team Hoyt? It's a beautiful story. We're going to watch it. Watch a picture of it in just a little bit, but let me tell you a little bit about them before. Um, As a result of oxygen deprivation at birth, Rick's brain uh, didn't get what he needed, and he was diagnosed with spastic quadru. He was diagnosed as a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. He would never walk and he would never talk. And his parents, Dick and Judy, were advised to just institutionalize Rick because there's no chance of him recovering. There's no chance of him ever having a, like a normal life. But that wasn't the path that the parents, that his parents wanted to take. So as he grew, they, they actually realized that he was very sharp, that he could communicate. He couldn't walk. He couldn't uh, move around like uh, most of us. And he couldn't talk, but they could see his eyes moving and they could see him thinking and they could see him processing. And so they actually paid to have an an interactive computer built for him where he could move a cursor around uh, letters in the alphabet and then move his head to select a letter. And he could actually write them out messages. And when he was 15... Rick told his father that he wanted that he wanted to participate in a five-mile benefit run for a lacrosse player that had been injured and paralyzed. So Rick, who can't walk and he can't talk, says, Dad, I want to do this race. And Dad says, all right, we'll run it together. And that started an incredible process of a father and son team that became known as Team Hoyt. And uh, you'll, you'll hear it in the video. After finishing the race, Rick told his dad, Dad, when I'm running, I feel like I'm not handicapped. I feel like I don't have a disability. And this realization did something to his dad. So that became what would, what would become over a thousand races completed, including marathons, triathlons. They did the Ironman six times. They uh, biked and ran across the United States together. 3,700 miles in 45 days. And in 2013, they were set to run. They qualified, and they were set to run the Boston Marathon. And the bombings happened, so they couldn't finish. And they went back in 2014, and they ran the Boston Marathon together. Here's a picture of Team Hoyt.
You think that was easy for his dad? No. That required an incredible amount of effort. Do you think his dad would say that Rick was a burden? Not a chance. And I think the problem that we have, likely, is maybe we're not looking at people the right way. If we feel like people are a burden, if we feel like helping is a burden, maybe we ought to ask God to break our hearts, to look at them more like this father's son, to look at them more like God looks at us, like Jesus looks at us and says, I'll, I'll do anything for you. I'll do, I'll do anything for you. I would die for you. And he did. How can we look at people as a burden then? When we realize that this is God's approach to us, that this is God's approach to us, that it's his joy to love us. We get to trust in what Jesus has done and what he's doing for us. We grow in our ability to love him and love others. when we realize that this is God's approach to us, when we realize that it's his joy to love us, when we realize that we can trust in what Jesus has done for us and what he's doing, then we grow in our ability to love him and others. You have brothers and sisters who need you. They need help. We need to be loved as how God made us. We need to be known. People need accountability. They need you to not give up. They need you to love them. So maybe maybe two things that I'd have for you today. One, ask God to show you his love for you. This isn't just about going and doing good things. You start by being a child of God. Ask God to show you his love for you. And if you come to a point where you say, I I want to receive that, I want to go all in in believing in Jesus. And you ask God to show you his love for others, that you would see them the way he does, that you would see them as family And then he would turn, ask God to turn the burden of loving people into joy. The Acts 2 church is described as people who had everything in common. So they would get together and they would pray and they would have meals and they would uh, worship. And it describes them as saying nobody had need. Because if somebody came up with a need, somebody else would sell something so that they could provide for the need. And everybody had everything in common. And this wasn't a forced burden on them. It was their joy because of family. I cannot see my brother in need and not help him. We are invited into family. And we are called to love the family. This is family and family rules. What does that look like for you? I will say, this is not an excuse for abuse. 
So we don't tell people just love and forgive if he's hurting you, if he's hitting you. Boundaries are good. Maybe the best way that you can love is to go away and not let him continue hurting you or her continue hurting you, but to draw boundaries and say, I, I, don't, I don't want to let you keep doing that. What does it look like to love people? And here's the conclusion. John comes to the end of this passage. And he says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John ends this section by saying, the world is going to try and pull you away from this. The world does not want you to give yourself to God. It does not want you to love people. It will try and paint people as a burden. But we overcome that. Our relationship with Jesus overcomes that. Our faith gives us everything we need to overcome the temptations of the world, to overcome the lures and the calls of the world. The world doesn't want us to love, but we can love God and others because of our trust in Jesus, because, because he's faithful to that. Jesus won the victory for us, and he will continue to strengthen us. I love, I love, I love, I love, I love the end of Romans 8. I want to close here today. Romans 8, starting in 31, says, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? That I don't have to live in condemnation anymore. That I don't have to live under a God who just wants to punish me. That I can live in a God who wants to lavish love on me. And, and, and I, can, I can be more than a conqueror. I can live in that and I can give out of that. He says, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares to accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us the right uh, the right standing with himself. So who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean that he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. He says, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced, he says, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love. May we be the kind of people who find joy 
in receiving that love from him and loving him in return and then loving others, not because they're a burden, but because they're family. Let's pray. Father, it's such a powerful picture of Team Hoyt, of a father who would do anything to see his son fly, to see his son thrive. Father, the way that you look at us is like a good, good father. That you love us. And when we run from you, when we hide from you, even when we spit at you, you hurt for us because we're running from life. So, Father, would you, would you help us to see that while you discipline us, it's because you want us to thrive, that you don't do it just because you're angry and you want to take it out on someone. Help us to be loved by you and then to look at other people as those who are loved by you as those who are brothers and sisters, that we would have their back, that we would see their needs, that we would respond and not be indifferent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.